As you can obviously tell this morning, the Old Paz boys are missing one of their key components there, Bob Gregg. <coughs> Bob's in Israel, and uh, his job requires him to go to Israel quite often, but that's just a cover story. <coughs> Netanyahu had ordered all of my tapes and all of my books, did not want the Obama administration finding out about it, so Bob is secretly, covertly taking them into Israel. I'm going to tell you something. A couple of Thursday nights ago, uh, on, uh, I talked about uh, when, when uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu spoke before Congress. I, I talked about uh, you know how so many people in America, especially in the government, was like, "Who is this guy?" And I walked you through, uh, walked you through who he was and what he has done. And uh, we talked about the uh, I think it was in 1978 the Israeli commando raid on Entebbe. That's in Uganda, in Africa. And uh, uh, I got the idea that, you know, most of you, uh, especially your young, younger folks, don't, uh, you know, you, you were probably not even born in 78 or shortly thereafter, or you're still was not on your fudgesicle watching Bugs Bunny on Saturday morning. <laughs> so once we get past, uh, once we get past the uh, uh, volleyball, which is in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a, uh, uh, a, a night on a Saturday night where uh, I'm going to show you the movie Raid on Entebbe. It's one of the best movies that was ever made The documenting how the Israelis pulled it off. If you want to understand why the Israeli commandos are the best commandos in the world, that movie will show you how. So we'll have a popcorn fun night and fit in here and we'll show it. And it, it is a, It's good for your kids to see. No bad language in it. Um... Nobody, the only people these commandos kiss are their tanks and their airplanes. <laughs> it's a very good, but it is right down the line of what happened. And most people don't know that Netanyahu's brother was the only casualty uh, in that raid. Uh, it's an incredible raid of what they did. I mean, it's unbelievable. And I'm not going to take it away from you because you have to see it to believe it. But they did it. And they set the standard for special operations <laughs> tactics, boy. It's incredible. So we'll have that coming up just so you... You know that, and maybe by guess, but once he gets on my tape, maybe Netanyahu wants to be here that night, and, and, and who knows. Well, last week, we were, as you know, we're in the book of Proverbs. We came through Proverbs chapter 11, uh, verses 15 through 18. We've kind of working our way down through these chapters, uh, verse by verse, and, and my goal is to lay out some great practical principles for you. And last week, we, if you remember, we came through four of them. We talked about, first of all, how that you're to be sure for somebody uh, before you sign for them, get in a deal with them. Bible calls it surety. Be sure for your friend. Make sure that you're not going to get stuck with it. We talked about that. We looked at the gracious woman and her honor and how that she is a picture of the end result of the book of Proverbs in our life, the virtuous woman, Proverbs chapter 31. And we also saw how that strong men uh, uh, retain their riches. And I showed you the contrast between women and and men, and we talked about some things there. We looked at the uh, the merciful man versus the cruel man, uh, talked about that. And then I showed you the three things. We ended up with the three things that a child of God can be absolutely sure of in a life that there's nothing to be sure of. And that is a sure reward, a sure calling, uh, and a sure word. 
and we came through those last week, and today we'll pick it up in verses 19 through 22, and again, we'll lay out uh, the keys to all these verses and how they form our guidelines for life. And again, we're going to see now that uh, all of these are built around a positive and a negative. And I've told you that almost every week since we got into these series of verses here into the Proverbs themselves, that that's how they lay out. They lay out in a positive, then a negative. And they keep going back and forth because that's the way life is. So he says in verse 19, As righteousness tendeth the life, so, that, uh, so he that pursueth evil pursueth it into his own, to, unto his, uh, into, to, <laughs> to his own death. And they that are of a froward heart are abomination to the Lord, but such as are upright in their way are his delight. Though hand join in hand, the wicked shall not be unpunished, but the sheet of the righteousness shall be delivered. As jewel of gold in a swine's snout, so is a fair woman which is without discretion. Now, Father, we thank you today for the Lord Jesus and all that you do for us. Thank you for the Word of God, for its truth, for these great people that have come out today to hear your Word. And, uh, Lord, may uh, they not be disappointed. May you give us uh, the Word of God today that you have for us and teach us these great principles to live by, uh, great principles of life that we can take and use uh, all through every endeavor in life. We love you. We thank you, Father, for the folks that are here today and your blessings upon them. We pray for the Langford family, Father, and as your arms around them, and as we have uh, Steve's memorial service this Tuesday, uh, Father, that you'll get the honor and glory out of the service just like you did out of his life and the life of his family. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Amen. Now, verse 19 says, As righteousness tendeth the life, so he that pursueth evil pursueth it unto his own death. Now, I've taught you before that doctrinally, when you start putting out your Bible and getting your Bible together, that there's key words in your Bible. And I've given you them many, many times. And most of you know what they are. But I want to tell you, that when you come to the Bible and you want to learn the practical side of things, you do the same thing. You'll notice down through here that I'm, I'm focusing these verses and unlocking these verses by finding one key word, sometimes one key phrase, because these verses or the truth of these verses will be built around that. In English, glam, grammar is usually the subject, not always, but in most cases, it's the subject of the verse. And so I want you to be aware of that today as I'll point them out to you as we come down through it. But I want you to see that, that everything in your Bible, whether it's a doctrinal, you want to look at the key words there, or whether it's a practical application and you're reading it for something for you, look for the key phrase. Look for the subject of the verse and the key word, and then you build the truth around it. And you'll see today what I'm talking about. Now let's look at the first part of that verse. We're going to break them down into the negative and the positive, as we have been doing. He says, as righteousness tendeth to life. Now, for us as Christians, uh, the key word here, obviously, is the word life. Uh, that's the subject of the first part of that verse. And uh, here it will be eternal life uh, through Christ's death on the cross. In the Bible, and most of you probably are already aware of this, but in the Bible, when you find the word righteousness, when it talks about somebody being righteous or the righteousness or righteousness of God, it'll always be a reference to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know the Bible teaches in, in uh, uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that for as far as you and me is concerned, there's none righteous, no, not one. Bible says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. So in this world, there's only one righteousness, and that righteousness is Jesus Christ. 
It's the only righteousness on this earth. It's God's Son. And when we get saved, that's really one of the fu- fundamental things that happens. Now, I know salvation, you know, there's a number of things that take place, and we've talked about all of that, but if you want to put it in a, a very simplistic form of what salvation is, salvation is simply you and me who, before salvation or unrighteousness, or unrighteous, at the time of salvation, getting God's righteousness that makes us righteous in God's sight. That's what salvation really is. First, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 17 and 18 says, uh, For by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift uh, came upon all men on the justification of life. That's you getting God's righteousness. That's you and me getting God's righteousness. We talk about in the book of Ephesians, it talks about in chapter 6, the armor of God. And how many times you've heard somebody lay that out. What a great study it is. Seeing every piece of the armor that's listed there and how it applies to your life. Most people don't take it any farther than that. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, it says, By the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. The whole armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6 is built on the righteousness of God. When you got saved, you got God's righteousness. And when you got God's righteousness, now you have the ability to build everything in your life. We see it again in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, of the admonishment to a saved person to stay away from the world. And this is the verse that's always, a passage that's always used not to marry an unsaved person. And that's true. But it's in any situation where it's a Christian uh, to the world. The Bible says that be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion, that's an, that means togetherness. What communion, being together, hath light with darkness? The next verse says what do we have to do with Christ and Belial. Belial is the Old Testament name for the devil. So in a practical application, the first part of that verse, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, And when you get saved, you get that righteousness, and that's what God gives you uh, in your life. And that's how it talks about uh, as as the righteousness tendeth to life. Uh, That's exactly what you get. Now, he says in the second part of that verse, and here's the contrast of of this. And it says, uh, in the Old Testament, under the law, it didn't work that way. And, you know, this is something that most people have a tough time with. In the Old Testament, the Jew didn't have Jesus Christ. There's a contrast between the New Testament salvation and the Old Testament salvation. The righteousness in the New Testament is based on you and me getting Jesus Christ in a personal way, as a personal Savior. That didn't happen in the Old Testament. Christ hadn't come yet. There was no Pentecost. The Holy Spirit of God hadn't come. You're dealing with a different economy in the Old Testament as far as in a spiritual sense. And so the Old Testament Jew, the man in the Old Testament under the law or before the law, 
He got the righteousness of God simply by obeying what God told him to do. We look at Noah. <clears throat> Noah uh, was a man that got, got righteousness from God. And Noah uh, was, was the one and his seven members of his family were only the eight people that survived the great catastrophe of the flood. And yet <clears throat> Noah obeyed what God told him to do. And by obeying what God told him to do, <clears throat> that's how God gave him his righteousness. Not in the same sense that you and I got it. Noah wasn't indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. He's in an Old Testament scenario. And we know the Old Testament is based on the kingdom of heaven, which is the physical manifestation of things. So he has to obey what God tells him. God told him to build a boat. Somebody says, well, that doesn't sound like much. Well, it would be if you're building a 400-yard boat in your backyard, uh, that would be something in your neighborhood, I guarantee you. And the fact that people are asking him why he's building a boat, and he says, because it's going to rain. Now, that complicates it because the Bible tells us up to that point that it had never rained before. So he's trying to explain to people why he's building this aircraft carrier in the back of the yard because there's going to be a flood and it's going to rain to a group of people who didn't believe anything or know anything about rain or a flood. You see, that was a kind of a very a tough situation for him to be in. But the Bible says that he believed God and he did what God told him to do. And his salvation was that boat. That boat's a type of Christ. You believe what God told you to do, you get in Christ spiritually. In the Old Testament, he believed what God told him to do, and he got into a physical boat that was his salvation. That's how it works. When you get a little farther down the line, and you find that that's how it worked for Abraham. God took him out one time in Genesis chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, and he showed him the stars. And he says, Abraham, someday your seed is going to be just like those stars. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God, and then what does it say? And it was counted to him for righteousness. You see? Now, in the Old Testament, they got their righteousness by believing what God told them to do in any particular situation and obeying God. You and I get our righteousness by believing uh, in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Somebody says, well, Noah, you know, they had to believe. How goofy was that to be that, the, that they, they, they had to believe in a boat? It's no more goofier than me going around telling everybody that 2,000 years ago, a dead Jew hanging on a tree had enough salvation in his blood to pay for the sins of the whole world. Now, that sounds goofy unless you experience that blood. See? That's how the world looks at it. <clears throat> That's exactly how the world looks at it. And in the Old Testament, if a man lived by God's word and he kept his commandments, then he was to have a long physical life. That's the difference between, as I said, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. The oldest man in the Bible is a righteous, godly man named Methuselah. He lived to be 969 years old. Noah was a righteous man. He lived to be 950 years old. Abraham was a righteous man. He lived to be 175 and Moses 120. And so you see that when the Bible says and lays this out about this concept of righteousness uh, versus the uh, people who uh, don't do what's right, then you see that you get life from it. Now, the second part of that verse is the negative part. And it says this. And here shows us the con- another contrast. So he that pursueth evil pursueth it to his own death. Now, the key word here is going to be pursueth. Somebody pursuing something. 
And it, it doesn't matter if the person is saved or the person is lost. Uh, everybody on this planet is in a pursuit of something. And uh, we think that pursuing evil only pertains to unsaved people. Well, it certainly does because all an unsaved person does is evil. But let me tell you something. I've met some of God's folk that are pursuing it too. And the key word here for a man lost or, or, or saved is the word pursueth, pursuing evil. Now, this guy, he goes out after evil. And boy, if there's any time that you see this, you see this in the world that, that we live in today. I, I just have no time in my mind to think of how uh, this world has turned away from God in everything. We talk about it, but even in talk about it, sometimes we, we, it's hard to believe. Uh, there is nothing left on this planet that seeks after God in any way, shape, or form. And I'm not t- talking about unsaved people. I'm talking about God's people. I'm talking about God's people have lost their way when it comes to anything to do with God. But this guy here goes out of his way after evil. He's not your garden variety sinner who just lives in his depravity and goes through life. No, no, no. This guy's on the hunt. This guy's on the prowl. This person can't wait for the weekend. They can't wait for Saturday night. They hop from bar to bar. They go from party to party. They go from relationship to relationship. They pursue evil with a passion. As only an unsaved man or an unsaved woman or a worldly out of fellowship Christian can. And he gets death. Now that death can come in a couple different forms in life. Let me give you a couple of good verses here. First one's in Romans chapter 6 verse 23 that says, The wages of sin is death. That's one of the greatest verses in the Bible. I always call that my flip verse. Whenever I'm winning somebody to Christ and I'm bringing, the first thing I do is I I bring them through and show them that they are a sinner. And uh, I I use what's been commonly called over the years the Romans Road. And uh, it's called the Romans Road to Salvation. But somebody called that years ago because Romans is the great book of the doctrine of salvation. So you start in Romans and you go to Romans 3 and you learn that you're a sinner. Uh, You get four or five good verses there, add a little more on. Then you go to Romans 6 and Romans 6 is your pivotal verse. Romans 6 says that you just saw you were a sinner. Romans 6 says the wages of your sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's my springboard verse. I show them they're a sinner. I take them to Romans 6 and show them that that wage of sin is death, but I show them the alternative. And that springboards you into Romans chapter 10 and shows them how to be saved. You see, that, that, that's how you do it. Now, you can do it. In, now, there's no magical formula. That's called the Romans Road. But the Matthew Turnpike's just as good. You can go down to your Ephesians Highway. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, it, but that's a standard, and it's so simple because the book of Romans is, is, is where salvation is really laid out uh, in, a, in a key way. And, and I, 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 it talks about that the wages of sin is death. Uh, Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 6 says, In the house of the righteous is much treasure. But in the revenues of the wicked is trouble. Now, I was growing up, and I heard all my life. You know, when I went to uh, when I went to uh, we didn't have in our my schools when I was growing up we didn't have dare officers. You know, who 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 try to help you get where you're supposed to be. Uh, we just had our mom and dad. I mean, you know, uh, what a novel idea. But anyway, but I remember. I remember hearing them get up in, in class and say, the teacher say, crime doesn't pay. Now, you've heard that all your life. When I went to Sunday school, 
when I went to Sunday school a little bit later on, I heard a Sunday school teacher, sin doesn't pay. And I grew up under the illusion that crime didn't pay and that sin didn't pay. Well, I stand here before you now, being in the book for a little bit, I want to tell you, that's not true. Crime does pay and sin pays. It's got wages. And not only has it got wages, the Bible says there's revenue connected with it. That's a compounding interest. Not only every month do you get paid for your sin, it builds interest in your life to the point where it compounds in your life. And an unsaved man or a Christian out of fellowship with God, I mean, there's a payday coming. R.G. Lee was one of the great old evangelists. I heard him actually preach two times before he died. I think he died in 78. I actually heard him preach two times. He was known for one message. He preached some great messages. But his greatest message, and you can still go on YouTube and, 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 and listen to it. But his greatest message, and I heard him preach this message two times. The greatest message he, he, he ever preached. This old southern evangelist, and boy, he could take the paint off the wall. The greatest message I ever heard him preach that he's famous for was one little sermon called Payday Someday. Man, he preached that to a church, and he talked about there's a payday coming for your sin. He talked about that you think you can go and do your life or do what you ever want to do, and he built it around Romans 6 that the wages of our sin is death. There is a payday coming. And, you know, so when a man pursues evil, he's going to get a payday. It doesn't matter if he's a saved man or an unsaved man. There's a payday coming if they don't make it right with God. And there's two ways that that can happen. His death can come in a spiritual sense where he dies and he goes to hell. Separation from God. That's the real death in the Bible. Death in the Bible is separation from God. So an unsaved, wicked man who pursues evil and never pursues anything for God, he can come to the place in his life where he dies and he goes to hell. That's his payday. He's going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ, or the great white throne judgment, and he's going to stand up there someday, and he's going to have paycheck after paycheck after paycheck come his way in the lake of fire. Now, or his payday can come by uh, cutting his life short 10, 15, 20, 30 years uh, if, if he's a Christian. I mean, I don't know how many times I, over the years of my life, you know, I've seen some young Christian die way before his time because drunk driving, an overdose of drugs. We get to the point where he gets so despondent in life over things because he's made a lot of bad choices, or he or she, that they actually commit suicide. Here's a life where God had a plan for them, Jeremiah chapter 1. God had something that he wanted to do with them, but they wanted nothing to do with it. God had a payday for them at the judgment seat of Christ. They chose a payday down here on earth of the life they live without God. And their payday came, because your payday will always come. And it'll come one way or the other. It'll show up at the judgment seat of Christ as the child of God who did what God wanted you to do, or it'll show up in this life, and sometimes God will, you'll put yourself in a scenario and a circumstances that God has a plan for you. He wants you to accomplish that plan, but oh, no, no, no. You know more about it than God does. Just like when you're 18 or 19, you know more about life than your parents do. And it goes short. It goes short. I used to work down Payola a number of years ago. And I traveled around all four or five counties down there. And every springtime, there'd always be one or two kids 
in the high school kids that over that high school break, they always got killed. Because down there, there wasn't a whole lot to do, and they went out and did what they called hill jumping. They'd get a fast car, and there's a lot of hills down there, and they'd try to get their car to go off the road and, and sail through the air a little bit. But unfortunately, whatever comes up must come down, and sometimes it doesn't always come down the same way it went up. And I don't know how many times every year, time after time, some young kid got killed. Got killed in a car wreck, and sometimes two or three people with him. I used to take a break in the local cemetery down there because, you know, to get my paperwork done. And, and uh, there, was, there was the uh, last kid that got killed down there. His grave was right there. And uh, he was a ball player for down there, a baseball player. And he, he had a little picture on there. I always like when they put the little pictures on. I like to know who I'm standing on, you know. And, 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 and his picture was on there. And all these guys came over, his buddies. Some of them put a baseball. Some of them put, I never got putting change on the tombstone. But there was three, four quarters, you know. I don't know. Maybe he need to make a phone call. I don't know. But there was, there was money on there. One of his buddies had put his, uh, his baseball hard hat on it, you know. Somebody else put a couple of bottles of beer on the thing, you know. And I look at that and I thought to myself, man, that's exactly what the Bible talks about. This kid thought he was invincible. This kid thought he could go and live his life and do what he wanted to do. It's very obvious from everything on there that he was pursuing evil. He wasn't pursuing God. Sometimes it happens. I've seen him disobey the law. You know, you may not like the law. The law may be corrupt in some areas, but Romans 13 says it's still the law. When a police officer pulls you over, you got a choice. You say, yes, sir. Even if, you, even if you think you're being mistreated and you shouldn't have been pulled over, you know what? He's the authority. You say, yes, sir. You give him your driver's license. You don't fight the guy. You, don't, you know what? You only fight the guy when you've done something wrong and you don't want to get caught. And then something bad happened and it's a police officer's fault. Let me tell you something. Obey the law. If it's wrong, if it didn't work out, if you were wrongly accused, work it out in court. But putting yourself in that situation where here's a police officer who all day long he has to go up on cars and the chance that somebody's going to shoot him in the face or somebody's going to shoot him in the back, he has to be on guard all the time. He wants to go home at night to his family just like you do. Now, when he pulls you over and he asks you for your driver's license and you give it to him, you say, yes, sir. You say, no, sir. You don't get out of the car and say, I'm not giving you nothing. That's not the way to handle it. Many of them do, oh. And when they do, unfortunately, many times, things wind up not going the right way. For a Christian, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. See, that's physical death. There's actually times in a Christian's life, and there have been many a child of God who God ended their life early simply because they refused to do what God had saved them for. God has a plan for us. God didn't save us so we could just go to heaven, but in the meantime, continue to do what we wanted to do. He saved us, took us out of this world because he had something he wanted to do. A Christian who takes God's salvation but refuses to live the world, man, you're walking on thin ice. You're going to head for trouble. And it's simply because a person refused to do what God wanted them to do. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the word naughty, naughtiness, in an old English phrase and how it's used today, but how it means in the Bible. It means worthless. It means of no value. 
And many of God's people live their life this way, not God's way. And they complicate their life so bad with bad choices and bad decisions that there comes a point where they can do nothing for God. And they only get worse. It compounds it because sin has wages. And they continue, as the Bible says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, to frustrate the grace of God. And in the book of Galatians, if you know what that book about, there was a group of people who claimed to be Christians who were diverting from the truth of the Word of God. And Paul says, you're frustrating the grace of God. A lot of God's people do that. You know what that means? That means God gave you his grace for you to do what he wants you to do, not what you want to do. And when you don't do what he wants you to do and you do what you want to do, it frustrates him. And worse than that, it frustrates the grace that he gave you. So, in the end, the frustration through the lust of the flesh, the world, totally controlling our lives, and all the ungodliness that goes along with it, God comes down and sometimes checks that child of God out of this life early to keep his sin from from corrupting others. So the Bible says, he that pursueth evil pursueth his own death. And that is whether you're saved or you're lost. It's a tremendous principle. Listen, God's main goal in this life is to get honor and glory out of everything that goes on. Now, we look around in the world, and the world's a mess. You look at Christianity, it's a mess. You look at the world, it's a mess. You look at our country, it's a mess. You would have a hard time thinking about how in the world can God get honor and glory out of anything in this country, out of much in Christianity. Well, he can, and he will. Because sometimes God gets the glory by judging what's wrong when there's an absolute standard what's right. And God will get the honor and glory because we are a vessel of honor and we give honor and glory and God will say, you'll get the glory out of that young man and that young lady or he'll have somebody disobedient over here and God will whack that person and God will get the honor and glory out of that. Other people out there will say, wow, you know what? He was a Christian. I don't want that to happen to me. God's going to get the honor and glory out of it one way or the other. You might as well, you know, I always thought, the verse over there where the Bible says that every knee shall bend and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know that's not an option in the Bible. You know that it's going to happen. You are going to bend your knee and you're going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You're going to either do it now and submit yourself to the things of God or you're going to do it then when he forces you to do it. But you're going to do it. Now look at verse 20. They that are of a froward heart or abomination to the Lord but such as are upright in their way are his delight. Now, froward here is the key word. We know that froward means perverse. It means totally against God. In this case, somebody's heart. And here again, this is the man of verse 19. These two verses go together. In fact, all these verses kind of go together. And he's not, your, as I said, he's not just, just your ordinary sinner. He's an abomination to God in what he thinks in his heart. And we know that uh, the Bible teaches very clearly from Ezekiel 28 and uh, other places that our sin starts in our heart. It's where it always starts. Where it started the original sin with Lucifer was in his heart, Ezekiel 28 too. He said in his heart, I will be like the most high God. In his heart, he was lifted up by his pride. That's where sin starts. And this man, his t- twisted, wicked heart does more, as I said, than just rest in his depravity of being an unsaved man. Oh, yeah. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 18 and 19 says, 
having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanliness with greediness. Now here's a man who gets past feeling anything from God. You know that can happen in your life? It can happen in an unsaved man's life because he can't really feel anything for God anyhow until the God touches him, but it can certainly happen in a Christian's heart. You can get your heart so cold and so far away from God that the preaching of the Word of God doesn't touch you anymore. If you're sitting here this morning and you're listening to what I'm saying, and I'm not really preaching yet, I'm just kind of getting warmed up here, but if, you, if you're listening to what I'm saying and you got in the mindset, oh, you know, here we go, this or that, that you're halfway there. You're halfway there. I'm not up here because I've got uh, something that I think that I have to say. I'm up here because I have a message from the God, from the Word of God, that everybody that's saved needs to hear. We go through life, you know, and everything you see in life, everything you see in life, everything, everything you see in life, whether it's a billboard, a commercial, a TV program, a magazine you read, everything you see in life tries to prepare you to live a life on planet Earth. My job is totally different than that. I have a hard job because I'm in competition with that because my job is to try to get you prepared for the next one because that's really the one that matters, not this one. So you begin to see how this thing works. He's past feeling anything for God. He seeks out many wicked inventions, the Bible says. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29 says, Lo, uh, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright. You see, the original creation, God made man upright. But here again, man wouldn't live it alone. Man was not satisfied. Man wanted a better deal than he got from God. And boy, there's always somebody out there who will try to give you a better deal than God. But they have sought out many inventions, and that's what men do, who are wicked, who pursue evil who have a froward heart. Now he calls evil good and good evil, Isaiah 5.20. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 now says that their foolish heart was darkened. And some of God's people are exactly the same way. They get to that point in their life where they can't feel anything from God anymore. That, the Bible calls that a hardness of your heart. It calls that searing of your conscience. Getting to the place where sin is just like eating a sandwich that it doesn't bother you anymore. There's no conviction in your life about it. There was a time when you were a young Christian that you thought something or you did something wrong, and man, you couldn't come out of the house for two days. God smotes you to the floor. But boy, as you grow and you learn the circles and you learn the little paths out from under all of the conviction, and you start getting into other circles and this, that, and get away from the Bible, there comes a time in your life where uh, you can't feel anything for God anymore. And that's a tough place to be in. Look at the second part of verse 20. But such as are upright in their way are his delight. Now, this is the positive part. Here, the key phrase is upright, upright in his way. I told you in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29 says that originally God made man upright, but man didn't want that. And even though Adam fell and sinned and brought sin into the world, as we've already seen, Praise the Lord that Jesus Christ, who makes the difference, saw that, loved us in spite of that, and then came down in spite of your sin and my sin and made a way out that even though that I'm not upright anymore, once I get saved and get God's righteousness in his mind, I'm now upright again. That's an incredible thing. But you know, 
Some men just have to go the wrong way. I've seen it in the ministry. I, I love people. I, I don't think I've ever hated anybody in my life. I don't even think I have the capacity to hate. Maybe I did before I got saved, but I don't even remember hating anybody back then. Well, one guy used to beat me up all the time and take my lunch money. But he was my uncle. I, I, I don't, I, I mean, I, I love people. And I try to do the best I can with people. I try to help people and I try to do what I can. But I won't tell you something. There's some of God's people. I'm talking about, I mean, an unsaved man, he can't go the wrong way. He is the wrong way. But I'm, I'm telling you, when it comes to God's people over the years, I've seen some of God's people just bent on going the wrong way. There's nothing you can do about it. You can preach to them that the cows come home. They are just going to go the wrong way in life. The Bible says they seek out many inventions. The Bible says in Proverbs 19.21, there's many devices in a man's heart. But the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. They're constantly looking for things to put in their life that go the wrong way. Down by my house, I live at... Uh, I live right off of 83rd Street there, Woodson. Most of you have been there, so you know where I'm at. Um, but by my house at, 80, at the intersection right up over the hill there, 83rd and 350 Highway, uh, is one of the greatest examples of, of this verse uh, and the child of God out of fellowship and going his way to death and destruction. And every time I go up there, uh, or every time I see it happen, uh, but every time I just drive up there to go somewhere, because it's a main way to get out of my my. Uh, my subdivision, I always think about this. When I go up 83rd Street, and I live down right below there, so I come out of it, I go up over the hill about, oh, maybe a quarter of a mile, and right at the top of the hill, I come up to 350 Highway. And 350 Highway right there is eastbound. And then there's lights there. When the lights change, you have to drive probably another quarter of a mile, uh, and then you have the 350 westbound. But you can't see it from this end. And so it, it, somebody who doesn't know what's going on and there's no traffic coming, you'll think that that 350 is both eastbound and westbound there at 83rd, where that might off of my house. I don't know how many times, I don't know how many times I've been in behind somebody and watched them, watch them come up to that light and turn right into oncoming traffic. I've seen them run off the road on the other side to keep from getting killed. I've seen them stop and cars honk their horns and cars split around them. I've seen it at least I've seen it at least five to ten times. So you know how many times it must happen. But I'm telling you, right there at the light is a big sign with an arrow with a red line through it. Now that arrow turning this way with a red line through it, it means don't turn that way. Then, on the other side, there's a big red sign that says, no left turn. And then, if you really made the mistake and you turned on it, there's a big sign with a skull and crossbones on it that says, prepare to meet thy God. There's three signs there. And I sit there. Anymore, I used to honk and try to tell them, I enjoy the wrecks now. I wish, yeah, I, 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 that's what, exactly what they say. Oh, my God. <laughs> Bang. And, and I, 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 I sit there, you know, and I, they're down there, and I know what's going to happen. The moment they turn their turn signal on to turn that way, I know that that right turn that way is another quarter mile up. 
Nobody's that proactive. <laughs> and I know what's going to happen. And I just kind of put my truck in neutral. If I got room, back up so I don't get hit by any debris. Get my smartphone out. Get a picture of it. Every time. They'll turn in, that light turns green, they turn into it, and there comes a big old tractor trailer in one lane and a bunch of other cars in the other lane. And you ought to see the expression on their face. I mean, they're, they're, they, 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 they slam on the brakes like that's going to help. They run off the road on one side, they try to back up, that ain't going to help because I've got you blocked now because I want to see the wreck. <laughs> they try to get out of that every way they can. Fundamentally, they made one bad choice. You know what it was? They went the wrong way. And I'm telling you, God's people, when they go the wrong way in life and they ignore the signs that God gives you through some half-baked preacher preaching it to you or somebody telling you about it, you're going to get in a wreck. And it's going to be a disaster. Sometimes it'll be a fender bender the first time. Sometimes you'll escape and get off into the gutter. Sooner or later, you will meet a tractor trailer coming at 55 miles an hour loaded with steel. And it'll be over. All because you're going to go your way, ignore the signs, and even though 350 only goes one way, you are sure in your mind it's going your way. Right to the point that it kills you. Now look at verse 21. Though hand join in hand, the wicked shall not be unpunished, but the seed of the righteous shall be delivered. Now the key phrase here is hand uh, join in hand. Now in psychology, this is called group association syndrome. People with the same mindset, same interest, you see it in ethnic groups, people with the same things in their lives will gravitate and always group together, hands join in hands, a bonding through similarities. You see it in the cities, if you're paying attention, any city, New York, L.A., Chicago, Kansas City. We all know about Chinatown. That's where all the Chinese people live. Very perceptive on your part. You're smart people today. I knew that I had a sharp crowd this morning. Down in New Orleans, it's called the French Quarter. In Utah, all the Mormons gravitate out there. Also, in Eastern, Eastern Independence, because the Mormon church split a number of years ago, and the real, quote-unquote, Mormons who consider themselves the one, they all moved to Utah. The Mormons who broke from them, they moved to independence. In fact, it really started independent, went from there. They are confirmed, believed, beyond it. They got a temple. If you ever go to the airport, you see their big temple out there on along the road out there. Uh, there's the big temple over in independence. And, of course, they believe that at the second coming of Christ, Jesus Christ is coming back to independence, Missouri. I don't mean any disrespect. 
But if your God can't do any better than Independence Preserve, I have been to Independence Preserve. They built this sprawling big tower so he could find it when he comes back. If you got a God that, one, can't find it without you helping him, and has to come to Independence, Missouri, man, you got, you're in trouble. I'm just telling you right now. You're in trouble. You're in trouble. I, I, no criticism. I'm just telling you, boy, that's, that, that's, there's some things there that you, you got some problems with. But my point is, they gravitate. The German people in certain cities, they have the little German section. They have what sometimes they call Little Mexico. In Ohio, in Ohio, they have down south Ohio, they have Amish country, where all the Amish people live. You drive in Kansas City, you never see a horse and buggy. You never see people with long black dresses and, and, and down to their ankles and, and hair all unless you go to some Baptist churches. But, but, <laughs> but I, I guess that was, a, that, was a, that was a bad illustration I should have used. But, but they, they ride horse and buggies. And, you know, and, 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 and they all live together. And they build, you know, everybody wants Amish food. Like Amish cook better than anybody else. It's a ripoff. They put on these costumes like they're really primitive people. They build these big restaurants. All you dumb people come down and eat there. They make millions of dollars, ride back and forth in a horse and buggy. Then they get into their Lexus and they drive out wherever they want to go. I know how it works. Did you ever see some of the farms that they have in those places? I am telling you, man. My point is, People like to gravitate together when they have the same kind of issues. Now, from a Bible standpoint, this is one of the greatest principles that I've ever found in in life and you'll ever see uh, at work in any church and Christianity in general. Because if you're going to put it in a practical application, a Bible context simply says this. Making alliances with other wicked people when you're wicked doesn't make you right. When you get your nose bent out of joint about something over the Bible and you know you're wrong and you don't want to admit you're wrong, you're going to search out other people who got their nose bent out of joint about the Bible and you're going to find them. That's called misery loves company. That's hand joining hand. People who don't want to do right will always seek out other people who don't want to do right so they can pretend that everybody's doing right. Last week I talked about a tailbearer. People who gossip and slander and lie will always hang out and make their alliances hand in hand with people just like themselves. See it ever all the time. I mean, all the Christian drinkers will always hang out with the Christian drinkers. All the Christian whatever will hang out with this. I mean, it's just the way it works. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, you had a group that was called the mixed multitude. They always murmured, they always complained, and they always caused Israel to stumble. They never were happy about anything. They never was happy with what God was doing. They had no relationship with God. When they got a little jam and they didn't have any water to drink in the wilderness, then they all whined and wanted to go back to Egypt. God gave them water, and they're very happy, and then the food runs out, and then they're murmuring again, and they remember all of the good things they had back in Egypt type of the world, and they go along this list. We had garlic. We had leeks. We had fish. We had cucumbers. 
Nobody even brought up the fact. You kidding me? You had 430 years of slavery in Egypt. But you see, when you lose sight of what God is doing in your life as a Christian, you want to go back to that old world and you forget all the bad things the world did. Start looking at all the things that you think is good. The leeks, the garlics, cucumbers. I don't know how you put that on paper, but that just gives me gas. Nothing in it of any nutrients at all. And that's the world. When they made the golden calf, it was that crowd. Moses had been gone for 40 days or whatever it was back there. He's up on meeting with God. They couldn't even wait 40 days for Moses to come back. They stab up and they say, oh, he's dead. We need to go back. And so they made a golden image, a, a calf. That's the crowd. That's the crowd. That's what they do. And you'll find that this mixed multitude, no matter where you find them in the Bible, they always did two things. And boy, this is a great lesson on Christian human nature in churches. One, when they all camped every night and pitched their tents, they all camped together. They didn't mix with the other people. All the mixed multitude had their own little group over here called Little China, Little Italy, Little Mixed Multitude. They're all together. And the second thing that they all did, they camped as far away from the spiritual source, which was the ark, as far as way they could get, but still considered themselves part of the nation of Israel. You know, there's people that do that in churches, people that do that in Christianity. In 4,000 years of history, nothing has changed one bit in the church age about that principle. And uh, I, I'm telling you, they, 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 they want to get as far from where the action is as they can. They want to get as far from where the hot spot is. They want to all hang together. Now, we don't have this problem in our church. And please, you folks sitting in the back, this is no reflection on you because I know where everybody's at. This church is a little different than other. But in most Baptist churches, it's a thing between the preachers that all the worldly people always sit in the back. <laughs> now, I look at that and I think to myself, okay, but what, everybody going to sit up front? I mean, if, if everybody sat up front and they got in front of you, pretty soon you'd be in the back. Yeah. See? So there's a little stupid to it. But I understand the concept because the mixed multitude didn't want to be part of what was going on. And obviously, where you sit in a church has no relevance to where you're, where you're at with the Lord. It's what you're doing with the Lord. That's the deal. But I mean, uh, I've seen it all my life, in all my years. In 1968, I was just a young guy. In fact, I was in the military. And... Uh, I learned a great lesson. The Vietnam War was not a very popular war. Every, this country was ripped apart by it. And it was an element in this country back then who was anti-establishment. They were anti-military. They were anti-government. They were anti-police. This is where the word pigs for police got coined back in that era. And I watched them as... I watched them as... They, they literally tore this country apart. And even back then, even though I wasn't a Christian, 
in any way, shape, or form or living like it. I, I, I learned from things like that. And I learned a great lesson. I walked across this country. I remember when they, they had what they call the Kent State Massacre. The Kent State Massacre was, oh, I don't know, seven or eight Kent State college kids got shot by the Ohio National Guard. And uh, it, was, it was rampant all over, all over uh, all this country. And it started on college campuses. That's where it always starts when you know who runs the college campuses. And uh, they were burning down buildings, tearing up this, burning down everything. They called in the National Guard. The National Guard, Ohio National Guard, was standing in a line, you know, and, uh, and trying to hold them back. And the crowd got too big. They were throwing rocks at them. They were throwing dog crap at them. They were doing all kinds of things, taking bombs or balloons, filling up with urine and throwing it on them. And these guys were afraid for their life. I mean, they were getting pretty rowdy. They were burning down every building they could see. These guys were standing there, and they kept backing up, kept backing up. They pushed them up to a little knoll, and they surrounded them. Well, right or wrong, the National Guard guys thought their life was in jeopardy. They opened fire on them and killed seven or eight of them. Oh, did this country erupt. It was unbelievable. I was stationed at Fort Devens, Massachusetts at that particular point in time, and uh, I'll never forget, they, uh, they, they, they besieged every military fort in this nation. I mean, there was hundreds and hundreds of people outside the gate, chanting, throwing rocks, throwing everything. And our, our, our commander over the fort up there, he was, a, uh, he was a rough old boy, and he had no place for this. And I remember walking up there on the hill and with my binoculars and watching down at the front gate, and they had all these MPs down there with flak vests on and bayonets fixed uh, to keep them out. And uh, I looked over here, and up the road, about oh, 200 yards, I saw four companies of Green Berets with nightsticks just waiting in line. And these kids started coming and started coming and started coming. It was all over the Kent State deal. And I, our commander gave the order for the, for the MPs to fall back, and I'll never forget. I get, he said, let them in. And they come through that first gate and met four companies of the roughest boys you ever saw in your life. And it was beat you six ways to Sunday. I mean, those guys held the line and beat up those people to a pole. And they went out of there, and they never got past the front gate in our fort. But I learned some things, things that I brought into my own life years later. Because I watched across this country an element of people who hated authority burn down whole cities, burn down college campuses. They were against any established authority whatsoever. They hated the police, they hated the military, they hated the government. And all of that, I learned a great truth. This discontent element will burn down a building and burn down a city but I noticed that these same groups never built up anything. And I want to tell you something. Hand joining hand. When you as God's people, you begin to hate God's authority and God can't touch you anymore and you can't do anything and you won't do anything, you become an expert in destroying things. You destroy other people. You destroy churches, you destroy the work of God, you destroy the ministry, but you'll never build one single thing in your life, including your kids. They'll never win somebody to Christ, they'll never teach or minister the word of God to anybody, they'll never give a dime to the work of God, they'll never get involved in any ministry, 
and they'll stay as far away from the hot spot of the ministry of Jesus Christ as they can and camp with their crowd as far away as they can. I'm telling you. Look at verse 22. Ah, here comes the good one. As a jewel of gold in a swine's snout, so is a fair woman, which is without discretion. Now, now in the Bible, oh, wait a minute, I, I skipped the page. I was so into that. <laughs> we, oh, that's part of that verse. I'm sorry. But the seed of the righteous shall be delivered. Oh, we don't want to forget that. In the Bible, key word here will be the seed. In the Bible, the word of God, that's what saves you and will deliver you when, you're, when your heart receives it. Bible says, being born again, not of incorruptible seed, but uh, corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. 1 John 3, 9 says that that seed, after you're saved, remains in you. There's a great story in Matthew chapter 13 about the parable of the sower. And they go forth to sow, and the sowing is the word of God. And it shows you there are four different kinds of, of sowing. He sows some seed, it goes by the wayside. Fowls come up, eat it all up, nobody gets it. He sows some more seed in the stony places. That's a picture of somebody's heart who's already hardened, and it can't penetrate, so it doesn't do any good. He sows some seed uh, in, the, in, the, in the thorns, come up and choke it. That's a picture of giving the word of God out, put it, but you've got some bad friends in your life that just keep taking away what God gives you. Finally, the fourth one, he finds some good ground. And that sower seed gets sown, the word of God, and it bears fruit. And it says some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but in the Bible, palm trees are likened to two things. Doctrinally, it's always a picture of the millennium. Palm tree represents the millennium. But inspirationally, it's always a picture of a fruitful Christian. Now, I pro you probably don't know where it is, but one time in the Middle East, years ago, at one time there was a certain kind of palm tree that was very plentiful. It's hard to find them anymore. They're almost extinct. And yet, those palm trees are a perfect picture of this passage and a picture of what a Christian should be. They're very rare today. They hardly exist at all, much like real Bible-believing soul winners. They once were plentiful when the Philadelphian church age, but now they're very rare. This palm tree, or a species of palm trees, had over 360 uses that you could almost make and use to make anything. Very versatile, just like what God's people used to be. This palm tree species, its roots went down very deep. It fastened on the rocks and could never be pulled out. It went down beyond the rocks and got its water from a deep source underneath the ground. And it survived through the hottest deserts because its roots were down in the water, much like Christians used to be. It bore fruit, dates. But the best dates off of this particular tree didn't come till after the tree had been in the ground for 30 years. Picture of Christ when he started his public ministry. And oh yeah, it grew up straight and it grew tall. But this particular type of tree, which represents God's people, came in three forms. One of the branches of the, one of the, one of the species of the tree grew 30 feet. The next one grew 60 feet. 
and one grew 100 feet. They were almost straight up, upright. And he brought the great principle, you know, that it does no good to grow tall if you don't grow straight. And that's the seed of the righteous shall be delivered. Because we're born again, not of incorruptible seed, not of corruptible seed, but by incorruptible, by the Word of God. And God will always deliver us from anything in this world when you put your trust in the Word of God. It's incredible. Incredible. Now, verse 22. I was so excited to get here, I thought I'd just shortcut it down here, but that won't work. As a jewel of gold in a swine's snout, so is a fair woman, which is without discretion. Now, this is one of the greatest principles of the 20, 21st century. For God's people today, as the world, they always seem to look at every situation, every person, everything they're in, and only see the outside of it. They look at a situation, they'll see what it appears to be, but never see the reality of what it is. They'll see a man or a woman, she'll be beautiful, he'll be handsome, and all they'll do is look at the outside and never consider the inner beauty of that person's character. This is called the lust of the eyes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. In the Bible, there's two animals that will represent one, an unsaved man and an unsaved woman. The man is likened to a dog. In the Old Testament, you'll find where they talk about Gentiles being dogs. They call that's a picture of an unsaved man. In Proverbs 26, 11, and 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, the Bible says, As a dog returneth to his vomit, so a fool returneth to his folly. Now, that's a verse that needs no Greek lexicon. That's a verse that needs no interpretation. That's about as plain as you can get. A dog, and we all love dogs, but a dog will throw up and then turn right around and go eat what he just threw up. Now, I know that's gross. I understand that. But you know what? You see a lot worse than that on television. <laughs> to me, I think it's a good thing because when I hear my dog throwing up, I just don't pay attention and I know it'll be gone in five or ten minutes and I don't have to deal with it. Maybe a little shiny spot, but... But that's what they do. You know the story of the two bums who were walking down a railroad track. <laughs> and they hadn't eaten for days. And the one bum says to the other bum, he says, man, I'm starving to death. The other bum says, I am too. The one bum says, I'm going to eat the first thing I see. Second bum says, ha not me, buddy. I'm waiting for a hot meal. So they're walking on down the track, and there's a dead possum over here on the side of the road. And that one says, I'm eating it. He got down there and he ate that thing up. And the guy said, not me, boy. He said, I'm not touching that. He said, I'm, 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 I'm waiting. I'll get, I'll get a hot meal. I'm waiting. He ate that thing down. They walked down the tracks about another 45 minutes. And that bum that ate that possum just got turned green and yellow. And he just started going over the side of the track. He just threw up, threw up. I mean, he just threw up and threw up. And I said, I told you not to eat that. He said, but the good thing is, I told you if I waited long enough, I'd get a hot meal. Lunch will be served immediately after church this morning. Now, 
you're going, oh, uh, you'll think, you'll be telling that tomorrow. You'll think of that the rest of your life. But the verse is true. Because just like a dog will go back and eat that, an unshaved man will go back to his sin every weekend. He'll get so sick and so tired of it and wear him out. She'll get so burnt out. They'll, I've seen them puke their guts out on a Sunday morning and just, just nothing left or a Saturday morning or whatever it is. And you know what? They're laying there and they're saying to themselves, I am so sick. Oh, I am so, why did I do that? Why did I do that? And you know what? The next weekend, you'll be right back at it again. That verse is true. Why? Because verse 19, he pursues evil. Now, for the unsaved woman, it's a pig, a sow. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 22 says, But it happened unto them according to the true proverb. This is true. The dog is turned to his own vomit, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now, now I want you to notice here that she was washed, see, but she went right back to the walling of her mire. That's a great lesson here. That's because she got washed, she got religion. See? She went to AA, or he went, she went to AA and got dried out. She went to NA and got clean. She went to church, got confirmed. She got baptized. See, she got washed on the outside and cleaned up on the outside, but what really needed to be washed was being cleaned on the inside. And Proverbs eleven twenty says that you can take a sow, a pig, and clean her up, dress her in a sequin sparkling dress or gowns, put jewelry all over her, put a gold jewel in her nose, perfume and bubble bath all over her, put her in a sequin dress and putting on Dancing on the Stars, put her there at the Academy Awards, go to state dinners, inaugural balls, Miss America pageant, Miss Universe pageant, the Bachelorette. Boy, they look good. I mean, they're shimmying around up there and the sparkling sequences are everywhere, you know, and they're saying, wow, look at her, look at that, look at this. On the Bachelorette, you know, this guy's got 20 women to choose from. Take the German shepherd, man. <laughs> and they ask questions. Never one time. I mean, he's, he's overwhelmed. They're all knockouts. I mean, they're all knockouts. And he's sitting there looking at that, and I've never heard one time. How many times have you read the Bible through? It's all about what's on the outside. And you can take a, an unshaved woman, and you can dress her up all those ways and put all those things in her life. I'm telling you something. And you can do all of that, but all you've got at the end of the day is just a star-studded pig. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, you can put clothes on her, diamonds on her, perfumes on it, bubble bath beads all around her, whatever you want to do. You cannot change the character of an unsafe person by putting and dressing up the outside. A godly woman has to be have her beauty on the inside. Proverbs 31 says, A virtuous woman, not one mention of how she looked on the outside. All of it's on the inside. 31, uh, verse 30 of Proverbs 31 says, favor is deceitful, and it is. Beauty is vain, and it is. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. 
Now, guys, I'm not saying you got to find the ugliest woman in the world. You know, if you want to be happy for the rest of your life. You know, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about that. I knew this guy one time. He, he, he was married, and his wife, le- she was pretty, and his wife left him. And about four or five years later, he got remarried. This is a true story. My uncle told me this, and, he, and they were in the Army together. And he, he, I, I finally met him, and this woman was the ugliest woman on the planet. She fell out of the ugly tree and hit every branch coming down. <laughs> I am not kidding you. I mean... She looked like the south end of a northbound tractor trailer. I ain't kidding you. She was ugly. And I, I remember my, my mom. My mom, she, she, she knew no, nothing. She asked whatever question she wanted. You know. And she says, why is he marrying such an ugly woman? Because he's not a bad-looking guy. And you know what his answer was? He said, you know... He said, he told my, my, my uncle this. He said, the first woman I married was really good looking and somebody took her away from me. So I decided when I got married a second time, I was going to marry somebody that nobody else would want to take away from me. <laughs> that, was the, that, that was a true statement. He, that, that was the right thing. Nobody. Nobody. You don't have, that's not what it's saying. There's plenty of very beautiful, attractive women in the Bible who had great godly character on the inside. And there's plenty of them out there. Just look around here. Just look around here. Just look over here. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that Real character, Christian character is on the inside. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 says, Likewise ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if they obey not the word, they also may be without word, maybe one with a conversation of their wives. See? While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that without adorning of plaiting of hair and a wearing of gold and putting on of apparel, what did it be the hidden man of the heart, that in which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit that is in the sight of God a very great price? For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands. Now, there's the real, real ornaments. Now, I know the charismatic crowd, the real weird charismatic crowd, they, they, they take it. And they say, okay, the women, you know, they can't wear any makeup, got to have your hair straight. You got to get, but no jewelry. I get that. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying that. It's not saying, as old Bob Jones Sr. used to say, ladies, if the barn door needs painting, you paint it. It's okay. You know, (laughs) put the makeup on. It's fine. It's fine. I get it. But what he's saying here, what made the virtuous woman a great example was not what she had going on the outside, but what she had going on the inside. Chase conversation. That's lifestyle. That's saying the right things at the right time in the right way based on the Word of God in her life. Meek and quiet spirit. That's an ornament. Guys, that doesn't mean she's a doormat. doesn't mean that she doesn't have a say in things. It doesn't mean that at all. It, it means the fact that she meekness in the Bible is power under control. It's knowing how to do it. I mean, that's what he's talking about. 
She knows when to be quiet. She knows when to speak. She knows what to say. And the Bible says she's in subjection to her husband. That doesn't mean that the husband lords over her and does it all around, but in a godly way. And down the line here, it talks about Abraham and Sarah, that they've got a great working relationship. She's in subjection to her husband. It's not the other way around. I've seen guys who were 350 pounds, 200 pounds. They were great hunks of a man, and they had a wife. that led them around like a little poodle on a leash going out for potty. <laughs> and I look at them, you know, and there's this little gal. Sometimes they're not so little, but there's this gal that, that you know, and she's got him, and he, he just, he's just walking along like this, you know. Come on, hurry up, go. <laughs> I mean... All these inner character qualities, ladies, they come from you, first and foremost, being in love with one man. That's the inner man of your heart, the hidden man inside you. And when a woman does all that she does and is all that she is to please that man first, the Lord, she will be everything you'll ever want her to be to you. Now, those are some great practical principles. You can see how Proverbs will just work its way into every aspect of our life. Proverbs is filled with them. Every chapter is a gold mine. Every verse is a treasure trove. When we apply them, life will become less complicated. Life gets, its un- gets uncomplicated uh, in two basic ways. God will show you the problem as it unfolds and will give you the principles of life through the Word of God to understand it and then to deal with it. Life gets simplified. There'll be times in your life where God doesn't show it to you that way. You got something that comes into your life that you don't get an answer on, you're not sure on, and you, God just doesn't reveal it. You know what you do in that case? You rush in a relationship that you have with him that know that even when you don't know what's going on, he does, and he's always going to be there, and you're always going to come out exactly the way he wants you to come out. When you belong to God, when I belong to God, and doing right, that when any problem I have in my life is really not my problem. I may have caused my own problems, but I can deal with those with the Lord. But I mean, when things come in that I'm not responsible for, they're not my problem. They're the Lord's problems. I spend so much of my time trying to solve the Lord's problems when they're really not my problems. And that just gets me complicated. So you got two choices. God will reveal it to you, learn the principles, open up the book, show it to you exactly what it is. You get a handle on it, understand it, you deal with it. And there'll be times in your life when something will come in, you don't see it clearly. God doesn't just open it up and make crystal clear. He's not always going to do that. You know what you do in both cases? Trust the book that he gave you. Trust the principles when he shows you what to do. Trust the principles when he doesn't show you what to do. Ultimately, he's going to bring you through it and deliver you because of your righteousness. Well, we'll hold up there. Let's have a word of prayer.